Welcome to Healing and Horsemanship, a podcast exploring the many healing paths we walk with horses. I'm your host, Shannon Ray Riley of Wild Willing Therapeutics and Training. This show is supported by The Herd. The Herd offers monthly bonuses for members, including access to a growing content library on all things health, wellness, and horses. For more on membership, visit wildwilling.com slash podcast. Thank you for joining me on this wild ride. And now, on to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to episode eight of Healing and Horsemanship, and thank you so much for being here. In today's episode, I'm sharing an interview I had with Jordan Stanton of JS Horsewomanship. Jordan is a lifelong horsewoman, herbalist, and marketing maven. She has been practicing herbalism for 25 years and is a plant medicine woman in her blood and bones as her great-grandmother was an indigenous healer in Oaxaca, Mexico. Jordan calls her work equine soul work and offers a blend of somatic work, depth psychology, and nature-based practices to women. She also offers workshops, classes, and wellness consultations on how to offer plant medicine to horses. She grew up riding hunter-jumper and as an adult has pursued the California Vaquero style of horsemanship. Sadly, we didn't get to talk much about that part of her horsemanship journey, or as we'll get into, her horsewomanship journey. But we do focus on how horses empowered Jordan to stay connected to her personal power as she explains that horses quite literally saved her life after experiencing a shattering childhood trauma and that the joy of being with them kept her here during the darkest times. That always gives me chills. In this episode, we talk about honoring and owning feminine energy and the difference between horsemanship and horsewomanship, how herbal gardening can help us develop an alliance with plants and to see them as another living energetic being, the importance of not only offering horses access to herbal medicine, but trusting that they have innate wisdom about their bodies to make their own self-care decisions how the horse world needs more herbalists who work small and go deep, and less of imposter syndrome that keeps us doubting our valuable knowledge and wisdom, how horses saved Jordan's life as a childhood trauma survivor and made her feel alive when nothing else did, the importance of integration and the alchemy of turning undigested experiences that manifest as trauma into wisdom. And finally, why we need to ask the question of whether our pursuit of health is exploitative of another being or community. I know that was a lot. I'll try to keep this short, but let me just say that I had a really amazing time talking with Jordan and I plan to have her on again so we can nerd out some more about herbal medicine and her soulful approach to horsewomanship. The bonus for this episode that's available to herd members is a deep dive on a beginner's guide to herbal medicine for the home and stable. In the guide, I talk about my personal case studies witnessing healing through herbal medicine. And actually, it's very interesting timing coinciding with the release of this episode, which was set to air on the summer solstice, June 21st. Sadly, that release date did not happen because on that day, I was actually in the emergency room with my sister. She had suffered a medical emergency. Thankfully, now she's stabilized and back home recovering. But the experience really brought to surface how I feel well-equipped during medical emergencies thanks to my studies of herbal medicine. That might sound really strange to some people, I'd imagine. But as we'll get into in this episode, when Jordan talks about her mare's injury that necessitated surgery, she talks about how she used herbal medicine to help her horse recover and that the vet's response was something like, I don't know what you're doing, but it's working. Keep doing it. 
when you work with herbal medicine, both at home and at the stable, you're going to witness some miracles, some things that just honestly baffle you. I have some pretty incredible stories. I definitely am rambling now, but I guess that happens when I talk about herbs. So just remember that one big takeaway for this episode is that plants, like horses, are really incredible teachers when you open your mind to their wisdom and truly listen. So we'll get more into plant wisdom later, but for now, grab a cup of your favorite herbal tea and enjoy my interview with Jordan. All right. Good morning, Jordan. Thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, me too. So let's just dive in and I'll give a little intro at the beginning to talk about your work, but why don't you, in your own words, just give a little background to the work that you do? Well, gosh, it's so it's hard for me to synthesize it into like one or two sentences, but I think the best way I could describe what I do is I do soulful work with horses and kind of the means of how I do that is certainly by educating people but also through the use of botanical medicine. So herbal medicine, flower essences, and just kind of helping shift people's perspective around what's possible in regards to healing for our animals. What got you started on the plant path and how long have you been working with herbal medicine? So my great-grandmother was an indigenous healer from Oaxaca, Mexico. And although I never met her, she died when my mom was 13. She raised my mom and I think instilled a love of plants into my mom. And so growing up, it was like innate in me. I remember looking at flowers and being like, those are gladiolas. Those are this, those are that. And like never having been told the names of flowers, those are petunias, like just knew. And growing up, I would make my mom take me into all these, like, this was like the eighties in Phoenix. And so these really weird hole in the wall health food stores. And I would always like direct where everyone was wearing Birkenstocks and (laughs) it was not, there were no whole foods back then. And I would like make her take me in there so I could like look at all the herbs. And and then when I turned 19, I went officially enrolled in herb school. So it's been 25, 26 years of like formal study, but I've been working with plants my, my whole life. Yeah, that's a big deal. I I mean, I feel like there's so much overwhelm in the herb world, especially when you get started and if you get started later in life. But um, when it's in your blood like that, you're probably just like with horses, you're probably always communicating the plants in this like spirit way. So you've done the formal studies, but what do your relationships with plants look like? How, you know, do you grow them? Is that the best way to get to know them and what they do? Oh my gosh. Well, right now I don't have a garden because we moved onto this big property and I've been working on horse fencing and horse, horses had to come first and their comfort. (laughs) But I have in the past had really big gardens and I, I just can't recommend enough the practice of gardening to get to know plants because we get really separated from our relationship with plants. I think thinking that it's like, oh, it's this little bottle and it's this thing that I take or this capsule or this powder. Whereas when we grow the plant, we get to see it through all the seasons. We get to see it through all the stages of its life. And we begin to develop like an allyship with the plant where it becomes another being as opposed to just something that we take or ingest. So if you don't have, well, I think gardening you know, we can have like a huge gardener. We could just have like pots or containers and those work too. Like I always, I do classes on herbal gardening for horse owners or pet owners. This year I've been doing that just to encourage people to grow plants. But I'm like, you know, a garden can just be like a couple pots on your porch. It doesn't have to be an acre (laughs) or even raised beds. Like you can start really, really small. And where I am now, we live in a reserve up that butts up against public land. And so I spend a lot of time with the plants, just sitting with the plants, connecting with the plants, doing, I think what would be more traditionally called like plant spirit medicine, but I kind of have my own way of doing it and learning from the plants on like an energetic level is another lovely way to work with them too. So. Yeah, it actually It didn't come to me until later. Like I found that book, Plant Spirit Medicine. Oh, yeah. 
that blew everything open for me. Uh But I was like, wait, you can communicate with plants like like they're an animal, like they're they're, of course, like an alive being. But I think we're not easily given permission to go there. And even like herbal medicine is so fringe still, like Mm -hmm. in terms of just the health, health and wellness or medicine world. But for horses, especially there's like that, um, I'm probably going to butcher the name, but there's that study of, I think it's zoopharmacognosy. It's like how animals go and pick the medicine that they need because mm-hmm. they know, right? Yep. So how is it so important for our horses to have access to that as well? Uh, I mean, so many horses don't have access to pasture and for some of them it's not appropriate like if my mare was on a green pasture that would not be good for her but in a more natural setting horses would browse and they wouldn't just eat grass they would eat herbs they would eat tree bark they would eat shrubs and they really would kind of gravitate towards what they what they needed and I encourage people put a bowl of herbal tea out and offer a few different kinds or dried herbs and just see what your horse wants to consume as kind of an experiment. And people will often be surprised. So it's fun. And I think it puts us back in the perspective of trusting that they have wisdom too about their bodies, like innate wisdom. We do too. We just separate from it as human beings. We're taught to like be in our head and not in our body. But I think that's the gift of herbal medicine, at least the path that I was taught. It was about embodiment and it was about trusting your body and your intuition and having knowledge about your body and being able to make healthcare choices from that place as opposed to from, you know, a mental or more disembodied state. So do you also work with herbs in terms of like a first aid approach, preventative medicine, or just, you know, lifestyle wellness? I work with herbs in all of those capacities. Herbs are wonderful for first aid situations, especially with our animals and ourselves too, but certainly with our animals. I work with herbs from a wellness perspective to address different diseases in the body as well. So pretty broadly. I mean, we could easily spend the whole interview (laughs) just talking about herbs. I have plenty of herb questions, um, but we'll get to other stuff too. But for people who are, have no herbal knowledge and especially don't take herbs themselves. So it's like maybe a stretch to give them to horses. So how would you, you mentioned like doing infusions or buckets of tea. How would you recommend someone get started using herbs like with their horse and with themselves? You know, for a lot of people, the horses are a gateway. So they'll start using the herbs with their horse and then be like, oh, can I use these herbs too? And I was like, totally. I just had somebody, I'm working with their dog and we're doing some work with anxiety stuff with their dog. And I was like, you should take that formula too. And they were like, oh yeah, my nerves are shot dealing with this. And so they're going to start taking the same formula. (laughs) And sometimes the people and the animals need the same formula, which is fascinating to kind of watch how they will mirror us. Um, So I would say start small. There's thousands of herbs and many different traditions. There's Chinese herbs, right? There's Chinese herbs, there's Western herbs, there's Ayurvedic herbs. I mean, we could just go rainforest herbs. We could go crazy, but I would pick like three to five plants and really get to know them. I would drink them in tea. I would make oils with them. I would try to grow them. I would use them on myself and my animals and I would just start small and go deep. That's what I would recommend because it's so easy to get overwhelmed. Yeah. And the imposter syndrome thing, I think, especially with herbalists, like you said, there's thousands, thousands Mm -hmm. and thousands of plants. So the fact that maybe, you know, five well, but you feel like, but I don't know these. So how do I call myself an herbalist? Like that's (laughs) something I've struggled with so much. You know, I think... I think our world needs more herbalists. I think that having more community herbalists, people that know how to work with plants, I think it's more about perspective around plants and healing. And certainly I'm not saying like read a book or watch a 10 minute YouTube video and then go out there and just practice herbalism because it is a craft and it does require respect and practice. But I think sometimes we hold ourselves back because we don't know everything 
where we do have valuable knowledge and wisdom and that sharing that is actually really important. And sometimes by sharing it with other people, we deepen in what we, what we already know. That's been my experience. Yeah, I feel the same way. As soon as I started studying like holistic medicine, my friends and family would come to me and they're like, I have this going on. What would you use? <laughs> yeah. And I would go, oh God, I don't know really what you would use, but here's kind of the the stuff that I'm learning. So people will flock to you. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes that responsibility of not just giving people advice or helping them trust their bodies, but how do we use plants in a respectable way? I love that you brought mm-hmm. that up because mm-hmm. we could get into the, the over harvesting or the wild crafting conversation. Like there's okay. just a lot of pitfalls with that. So yeah, how do people make sure that they're being respectful and honoring the plants and not damaging them by using them? Well, there's a wonderful book called The Business of Botanicals, and I cannot remember the author's name, Anne something. And she, she's worked in the herbal industry for a long time. And essentially, she looked at, I think, coffee and chocolate and was like, oh, with a, a bag of coffee beans, I can trace it all the way back where it came from. She's like, but when I look at herbs, I can't do that. So she started to really explore sustainability in the herb industry and kind of cracked it wide open. And so she's facilitating really important conversations about sustainability with herbs. And, you know, social media is a blessing and a curse with botanical medicine in particular, because number one, you get these like little bite-sized pieces of information. But number two, you know, you get sold sometimes. Let's just use maca, for example right? It's a root. It's from South America. It's Peruvian. It doesn't, they probably are harvesting it here now, but when maca first came out, it was being imported from South America. And it's like, aren't there other herbs that we could use (laughs) that are more accessible, more sustainable, that don't have to be flown here? I don't know where they come from or how the farmers are treated. So I think trying to find simpler herbs to use, things that are local, things that you can grow, things that you know where they come from is is important. And then buy organic, like really, really buy organic. There are some plants like slippery elm powder, which I use a lot for ulcers and digestive disturbances in horses. And that plant, that tree is endangered in the wild from Dutch elm disease. You can still buy it wild harvested, but you're literally decimating the native population of this tree. So find out what plants are endangered. Golden seals endangered. <laughs> there are herb companies that unfortunately do exploit these plants and feed them to horses, which is <laughs> disappointing for me to see that happening, but get educated, buy organic if you can, and try to find out where it came from. Those would be my recommendations. There's a nonprofit called United Plant Savers that does a lot of education around plants that are like on the endangered species list, so to speak. So sorry if that was a long answer to that question. (laughs) That was great. Yeah. United Plant Savers has been like an invaluable resource. Yes. So wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think really like as I've started making medicine, which began with my horses, I was like, how do I treat this wound or Mm -hmm. this abscess? And so I'm learning to make medicine through my horses unwellness and then applying it to, to myself. But then I go, where, where do I find this herb? And it's like, oh, it's grown all the way in Hungary or, you know, in my area in Sonoma County, we're really lucky. We have our local herb shop and we have this like collective of farmers that grow herbs so we can get them fresh and like sustainably grown. We can meet the farmers, but that's so not available everywhere. So it is really limited. Like if someone's not growing them themselves, you could of course go out and there's the wild crafting, wild harvesting conversation, but even that gets really iffy, right? I mean, I feel like the topic of wild harvesting herbs is such a big one. We could spend two hours talking about the ethics around that (laughs) and how you do it well. And Mm -hmm. um, I think I would just say, I don't want to discourage people from doing it because I think it is an important part of being an herbalist, but I would say Mm -hmm. find where it's abundant, find Mm -hmm. where plants are abundant, find where they're thriving really watch a plant, get to know a plant. There's an herbalist I study with. She like sits and watches an area for a year before she harvests from that area, which I think is commendable. And then think about water. 
um, we're in a drought in the West. And so I would be thoughtful about how well plants are doing due to how much water they've received and think about that perspective as well. So those are just like a few thoughts around wild crafting. Do you go out and wild harvest certain herbs? You know, I, we have, we have some plants on our, we have six acres where we are and there are some plants that are growing in abundance that I do work with, but I do very small amounts. And then there are some plants in different parts of where we live, not far from our house, like chaparral or creosote that grows in so much abundance that I do do wild harvesting of that. I think it is a whole deeper level. It feels like a primal or primitive way of like reconnecting to herbalism when you can. But then, yeah, I literally just this year, I did my first um, foraging of cleavers. Oh, good for and, you. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it felt like a rite of passage as like an herbal student. But yeah. then I'm going, oh my gosh, am I you know, am I not watching carefully enough about this population, even though I see it grow everywhere where I harvested it? And then, yeah, all those things pop into your head. So I've really come to learn that like working with herbs is a relationship, just like horses that you really have to like sit with and honor. And every day you're going like, did I do right by this being? Yeah. Well, so kind of segueing into the other work that you do that I'm really frankly dying to hear about. So you call it equine soul work. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I would love to talk about that. Um, I believe, and this has been based on my personal experience, that horses teach us, especially those of us that might be a little stubborn, but horses have things to teach us about ourselves that we might not learn any other way. And so this idea that if we can orient back to soul, and I'm talking about soul from like the Jungian perspective, like that inner essence of us that is wise and that is timeless. And that if we can get into alignment with that, then we live out our dharma. We live out our purpose. We live out a deeper, richer life that often involves giving back, right? Um, And I think that horses are excellent guides on the journey of reconnecting to soul because I think Horses and the human soul kind of speak the same language. Horses operate on subtleties, right? They operate on, I think horses are deeply intuitive. They operate on energy and feel, and it's very similar to the human soul. And I think in our culture, even more so now with all the social media, we are invited on a daily basis to sell out our soul, (laughs) And to want to take the easy route or take the pill, which I'm not saying to not take medication at all. I'm just saying like the quick fix to things, right? To be fast, to be in our heads. And I think there's different ways in the world to kind of come about reconnecting with our soul. But for me in my life, horses have been a tremendously deep guiding force. They've kept me here on this planet during very difficult times of of my life, but they've also really directed me to like what my bigger soul calling is and what I'm meant to do in the world. And so I've personally just dedicated myself to following the path of the horse. And so I'm sharing that perspective and work with people along with this whole other body of work I have from 25 years of working with people around trauma, somatics, earth-based ritual, but it really boils down to connecting back deeply with the self or the soul. So you have an actual course coming up with Catherine of Open Heart Horsemanship? Yeah, it's a pilot. So we're doing a three-part pilot with this material. With a, We're asking people to apply for the circle. We really want the opportunity to put this material out there and kind of do a call and response, you know, here's what we're offering and kind of see how it lands. And then that's kind of how I craft programs is I come up with the bones and then by facilitating them to quote a Clarissa Pinkola Estes, I sing the flesh onto the bones by facilitating it. And sometimes you got to do it five times, 20 times, a hundred times to kind of see what the material really wants to have happen. Build programs that are living. They partly comes from the idea that comes to me and material that may come through me, but also it's in dialogue or conversation with other people and other beings often to kind of see what this material is going to look like as it lands. 
and as it's offered to different groups of people. I helped start, I was part of the founding staff of a very innovative nonprofit um, that is no longer around, but it was called Shakti Rising. And I ran a community education program and I was very blessed to work with our founder who is a genius on so many levels, but she really taught me this gift and practice and craft of creating curriculum that is not only about creating change mentally with people, but energetically, spiritually, and creating sustainable change so that people can integrate what they learn or what they experience. So it's like a technology. And sometimes that's often the part that's like left out or just not even given attention to is the integration. I find that to be true, especially with like the equine assisted therapy things that I've done or think coursework. I find that sometimes the integration is lacking. You go and you have this amazing experience with a horse, but how do you apply that the next day or the next week when you're sitting at a desk or pushing your kid in a grocery cart or in the day to day? So I think that integration piece is actually really important with how programs get offered and how they get anchored for people. That's super interesting. You mentioned that too, because I've been hearing about the integration piece, like really coming up strongly with um, hallucinogenic plant experiences or psychedelics. And it it can be the most profoundly positive life-changing experience for someone, but if they don't have the tools to integrate it, it can be so disruptive in a sense almost or confusing, right? Mm -hmm. So now that's becoming the focal point, which is beautiful. And it sounds like, yes, we really do need that more in the horse world where it intersects healing. And I think in general, as people, we don't always know how to integrate or digest experiences that we have. I mean, you can, if if you look at trauma, right, in some ways, trauma is undigested, unintegrated material, because if we're able to work with the experiences that we have and digest them and process them in our system and integrate them, damn, that's wisdom. That becomes lived experience and wisdom. And we've lost some of that, I think by divorcing ourselves from wild, like our wild nature, our innate nature. I know I was listening to your podcast interview with that person, Trent. I can't remember his last name, but you were talking about like an animal, or even if you've watched any of the videos that Peter Levine has in his trauma trainings, where you watch like this gazelle get attacked by a lion and it gets away. And like what happens in its system, right? It shakes, it moves to work that out. We've forgotten some of that. And part of our work to integrate, I think, is to learn how to let experiences move through our system and not get stuck. Easier said than done, but it's so important. And I'll I'll add this, in having practitioners that truly have done their work, Not I'm not just talking like a training here or there, people who really understand trauma and have done their own work in their nervous systems, those are the good guides there. Those are the good things. <laughs> Completely. Yeah. That's like, that brings up so many other conversations, but mm-hmm. I love what you said and how you defined wild earlier as like the soul, that timeless part of us, because it is, it's so suppressed in our society and maybe social media is like a key factor in this, but how we're basically putting on masks of ourselves every day to present to the world right. who we are, what we do. And then we have like an emotional moment and it's like, oh, wait, that's a weakness, right? But really, that's that wildness again, reasserting itself in that we don't have control about everything. And maybe horses are the best reminders of that, Mm -hmm. that we can't control every little thing. And when we do surrender and let go, we find the best grace and harmony within that too. Yeah. You know, even if you just sit and watch horses, we just built a paddock paradise track system and my mare has never been yeah. on one of those before. She's been out on it for about a week and we have a couple donkeys that are coming over the weekend, but I've been acclimating her to it and the exuberance and the joy and that sometimes I have to be like, I don't want to, I don't want to see what you're doing out there because <laughs> you're 21 and you've had some lameness issues, but just watching like the wildness and the exuberance and like there's an uncontrollable force in horses that we, we have to confront and come face to face with. And guess what? Untended material in ourself can feel just as uncontrollable and frightening. So I think if we can meet ourselves in that 
and we can meet a horse in that, we're, we're cooking with something. We're working on a deeper level than trying to like shut down or suppress. Yeah, you actually mentioned too in our email communication before this interview that you are a trauma survivor and how horses literally saved your life. So it sounds like you've done the work, right? But can you speak a little bit to that? How did horses support you through yeah. that? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this this morning on, on my walk. When I worked for that nonprofit, I would share like my story all the time, you know, and when I moved I was living in San Diego, working for that organization. When I moved, I kind of stopped sharing. And it was good for a period of time because you kind of become known as your story, right? And I got to like let go of that and really redefine who I was. But, you know, the trauma I experienced as a child was, it was, it was severe trauma. And it was the kind of trauma that's shattering to the soul. And I remember for a long time, thinking to myself, because I dealt with a lot of fear as a rider and I still do sometimes, but it's gotten a lot better. And I think my nervous system associated because the, the, the perpetrator of the trauma in my life also had horses. And so I think my nervous system associated horses with fear. And so I kind of connected those two, but as the years have gone by, I've realized that no, 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 that wasn't what was happening. It was that I experienced shattering trauma as a child, but there were horses there. And I, I really believe that had I not had horses there, like immediately near me, I don't think I would have survived what happened. I think they helped ground out some of what happened. And I think they helped steady my nervous system on a certain level. Um, and so I don't know what, other people's cosmology looks like spiritually or religiously, but I really believe that horses were like involved in this equation because I don't think as a highly sensitive, intuitive child, I would have survived the things that I experienced without, without them there kind of by my side, so to speak. And throughout my life, I think they provided an experience of like empowered embodiment that I wasn't, that was not happening anywhere else in my life. I felt alive on the back of a horse and like in my power and in myself as a child. And that was the only place that was happening. And so I think that feeling kept me pursuing, (laughs) kept me pursuing horses throughout my life. And then, you know, as a teenager, I was an, I was an acting out child. Like that was my role in the family. I was like exploding with trauma and exploding with emotions that were not processed and very self-destructive. And I attempted suicide twice as a teenager. And I remember coming through that period of time and often thinking like, okay, I'm just going to hold on. If I can ride one more time, I'll just hold on till I ride again. And then I would hold on. And then there would be another, oh, I'll just hold on till I get to do this thing with a horse. And then I would hold on longer. And then I stopped kind of needing it like that. But I think horses have been like my soul guide since I was like seven years old. That's my perspective on kind of the role they've played in my life. And I'm sure I'm not alone. I know I'm not alone. And like these kinds of experiences and having horses kind of by your side during, during them. So. Wow. So I'm fascinated. It's just my observation though. What really hits is that they kept you here and they saved you growing up and then you turn around and throughout your adult life, it's like your work to give back, improve their welfare. So that is pretty profound. I've never thought about it like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we have these conversations, right? And need each other's community. (laughs) I've never thought about it like that, but yes, I made it my business to in the way mm-hmm. that I could, right? I'm not a horse trainer. I'm not actually that talented of a rider. I've learned a few things mm-hmm. over the years of being really dedicated to, I've studied with Buck Branneman and Chris Ellsworth and mm-hmm. really learned a lot from those horsemen. But I'm by no means a talented horse trainer, but I'm deeply intuitive and I'm very knowledgeable about horses. And I have been a vet tech and worked on farms and ranches and lived among horses for a long time now and really mm-hmm. have it. I think inherent understanding about what creates vitality and well-being for them. And for me, my way of working with that is with the with the plants. It sounds like your soul 
blueprint really that you had this like in your ancestry the connection to plants you had that medicine you're holding and the horses are like no we know we know what you possess we're gonna make sure that you can do this work that's so beautiful so when did it or did it ever become clear that you're throughout your adult life you're like okay I'm choosing horses well I I worked for this nonprofit. And through that work, I was a client. I was like one of their big success stories early on, right? I had all this trauma and I had tried a lot of things and I came from an upper middle-class family. So my family had some resources, but I was like, I was, I was dying, you know, both because of what was happening to me internally, but also because of my own, at my own hand. I mean, I wasn't going to make it in the current ecosystem that I was living within. And I found this nonprofit organization and I dedicated myself to giving back, right? And helping steward this kind of groundbreaking, gender-specific, trauma-informed work. You know, all this shit around, all this talk around trauma and somatics, like we were doing this stuff 25 years ago and we we were the things that people said about us. <laughs> the things that we were accused of. The th- I mean, it was crazy. And our founder was so brave and so courageous to steward this work because she got so much shit for like what she was presenting in the world. But the proof was women who hadn't had anything else work for them ever were completely different people and thriving in their lives. And so that was this education, not only on my own healing, but on what it takes to help other people heal, truly, truly heal. So from that perspective, I am a trauma expert. I'm not a marriage and family therapist. I'm not a PhD, but I have been trained by some of the best trauma experts in the world because we were stewarding this work. And so a lot of those people were like, whoa, what are these people doing? Because we were putting it into practice in a way it had never been put into practice before. And so I did that until I think I was about 31 or 32. So from 21, so 10, 11 years, really like that was my whole twenties was like being in service to other people. I went out and bought myself a horse because <laughs> that's what you do when you're 30 some odd years old <laughs> working for a nonprofit. And that changed the total trajectory of my life because I was like, oh, I don't really want to live in Southern California. I want to live in a place where there's more open space and where horses are more accessible. And so that really kind of set this other, it was like, there was this half of my life and then this horse half of my life. And now I feel like the work is kind of coming back around in this lovely way where it's like both of those worlds get to come together with this soul horse piece. Can you just talk about the trauma piece and how people gravitate to horses for that work? So you were, as you said, with the nonprofit, you were doing this work before it was even called these things, right? And it was probably crucified as witchcrafter. We were called a cult. We were called, I mean, so many things where we were just women living in community doing healing work at a very Mm -hmm. basic level. That's what it was. I mean, it was so much more than that. It was an apprenticeship to a new way of life. It was soul work. It was Mm. alchemy. We used to use this metaphor of turning the lead of your life, which is your issues, your material, the shit that happens into gold, Mm. which is magic. You know, Mm. we were funded by the Alliance Healthcare Foundation. They gave us like a hundred or $150,000 to invest in a full scale evaluation of our program. And if you know anything about evaluation, evaluation is, and maybe this has changed. I don't know. I'm not an expert in evaluation and I'm I'm not in that world anymore right now. But back then, early 2000s, evaluation tools and standards were based off of white men. So we hired an amazing evaluator to come in and craft a feminist-based evaluation so we could actually figure out what the heck was happening with the women we were working with. And our success rates were so high, we had to lie (laughs) because no one would believe that we were having an 80 to 90% success rate with women that were like the throwaway kids, the kids that were never going to get better, people that were going to be institutionalized, homeless, drug addicts living on the streets, 
that we were having those kinds of outcomes based on what we were doing. So, um, yes, we eventually got legitimacy behind us, but in the beginning, people just thought we were crazy and we weren't, but in a good way. (laughs) It's all about perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it it didn't fit the standard or acceptable cultural norm. So if it was a different century, probably would have been like burned at the stake for doing work like that. For sure. Yeah. So I've always admired how you call your work JS horsewomanship. And it's funny because even as I'm like typing that in my notes, horsewomanship, it autocracks to horsemanship. I know, it totally does. (laughs) I don't even know. That's not a common word or anything. And it's it's definitely a a made up. It's not. It's a made up. (laughs) I made up the word. It took years on my phone for it to stop autocorrecting me. I finally did it enough times that it stopped it. Yeah, just that little shift, like those few different letters, Mm -hmm. it brings up a huge shift in thinking. So that was very intentional on your end. But can you speak to what horsewomanship is to you? I think it's the culmination of all the things I've been talking about on this podcast. I think it's recognizing, number one, that I'm a woman in the horse world. Um, And I have deep respect for the horse you know, it's interesting. My mentors early on in my life were women. And during the second half of my life, they've been men largely that I've learned from. Um, but it's recognizing I'm, I'm a horse, I'm a woman in the horse industry, but it's also that there's a feminine spirit that I bring and that we bring as women to approaching horses, to approaching life. Um, and that we have certain gifts and that's not that men don't have gifts too. Men do have tremendous gifts, but women do too. And I wanted to change that word and play with it a little bit to honor what I bring to the table when I work with horses, that it's a woman standing there that it's a woman approaching this horse and that we have different connection to subtleties than, than sometimes men do not all the time. Cause there are some men that have wonderful feel with the horses, but it was just time to play with the word. And cause I'm not a horseman, <laughs> I'm not a man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just that alone. It is interesting because it's always been in my awareness that there are a majority of women in the horse world in every area, right? And there's some areas, maybe like more Western, where there's more of a male yeah. approach or you mm-hmm. see more men. Mm-hmm. But just in general, like all the horse guardians that I know, nine out of 10 are women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is a, it's an interesting thing coupled with the fact that most of the clinicians or professional trainers that I see out there are men. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I'm like, yeah. How is that happening? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not that there's anything. I don't want to like crucify men or say that they're lesser in the horse world at all. But oh. I think because they're more of a rarity as a represented population, mm-hmm. maybe we just like in all other parts of our society, we like sell out our power thinking that maybe men do it better because they earn more money than us. They have more authority, right? They're just we're still in that patriarchal Mm. paradigm. So it's easy to go, okay, there's something that they're doing better than us. So horsemanship versus horsewomanship. Yeah. So I'd love to see more of that. Do you know anyone else using that word? I haven't seen it. I I haven't seen it much either. Um, I haven't Googled it though, but yeah, I haven't really seen it used very much. Yeah. Time to reclaim that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've been on a few different podcasts and I love... I love how you pick up these subtleties because I'm walking, I'm going to walk away from this experience being like, whoa, I learned some things about myself that, and I would imagine you're very, you're excellent with the horses because you really see the subtleties and like read between the lines and like see what's going on a layer deeper than what's at the surface. It's, it's lovely. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful skill (laughs) or gift. I should say. Thank you. I don't know that I can take the credit for it. Actually, it's funny you mentioned that because um, 
not last episode, but the one before I did one on just elemental constitutions, oh. according to Ayurveda. Yeah. And so my Ayurvedic constitution, I'm a Vata subtle. Oh, and so okay. the Vata subtles are all about like those fine, minute little details. Oh, I and like, it. I have a I have a trouble seeing like the full big picture mm-hmm. and I get lost in that, but mm-hmm. I just go to the subtle. Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, we all have our gifts like that. So I see, like, even though you mentioned that you're not a horse trainer, wow, look at how you're sort of repatterning. It's almost like you're shepherding. It's like a revolution. It's a change in perspective for the women, for the trauma survivors, for people in the horse world. I will say I am not a professional horse trainer, but I have changed my mare's mind and she's an appy, a redheaded appy mare. So I have some credibility. (laughs) I have changed her mind about a few things and when she was leaping into the air yesterday I told her to knock it off and she stopped just so I have I have I have some street cred from from I love that red appy watch out can you tell us a little bit about your mare yes my mare is she's my hero she's the best makes me want to cry when I think about her she um she's 21 and she is a friggin' survivor man she um I bought her about six and a half years ago and six weeks after I bought her she got kicked in the knee by another horse and it completely penetrated the joint capsule and um I know I've talked about this before but she Dr. Jameer from Gold Coast Equine was on call that night and he's just so lovely and wonderful. And he was super straight with me that like either this mare is going to go to surgery or we're going to have to talk about euthanasia because of how bad the injury was. And we opted for surgery and I just like, I can't believe I was watching her just like tear through the pasture yesterday and come trotting up to the gate to me. And she's sound. And part of that is because of her part of it is because of wonderful regenerative therapies and part of it is because of herbs and just the way that I have stewarded her in her life. And then she, she lost her left eye due to moon uh, ERU, which is really common in appies. So she only has one eye. So she's blind, completely blind on her left side. And she just, she just kind of finds the good in life, I think. And, and she doesn't, she finds joy and like is able to just move on and doesn't have like, like us humans, we have stories about things. Sophie doesn't carry stories about what's possible for herself. And that's why she's just my hero because she's a, she's a survivor, but she's not a hardened jaded survivor. She is joyful in her, like, I'm still alive. I'm still here (laughs) and celebratory about it. It's always like one horse. That's our, profound like our soul teacher yeah, she is my, for our life she's my soul horse for sure oh that's a huge huge recovery that I'm sure not a lot of horses would come out of whole or being able to return to just having fun ripping around pastures no and at UC Davis they told me if she if she survives a sepsis because that joint was septic they told me that she would most likely be a pasture pet for the rest of her life and that's not been the case she just she wants to go 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 and she's 21 I just can't watch sometimes the things she does out there (laughs) just can't watch it so like I've put a lot of money into keeping you alive and sound please do not harm your body (laughs) can you also speak to like you know surgery might be coming more of a common thing for things like that because Mm -hmm. of the successes and new technology so if somebody did have a scenario like that with their horse or they're coming out of surgery, how can someone work with herbs to help support their recovery? Yeah, you know, I learned so much from that process. And so a few things, you can do flower essences. So flower essences are vibrational medicine. They're they're kind of in the same family as homeopathy. They operate on the premise of small is beautiful, small is powerful which we could totally go down that rabbit hole. We're not going to, but we could about why that's so amazing. Flower essences also won't interact with any medications and they can help stimulate the healing and vital forces in the body. 
they can help kind of bring the etheric body back together when there's been a shattering experience, which sometimes surgery can be, especially with horses, right? You know, you, you lay, they lay them down. Um, and for some of them that can feel like a near death experience of being laid down, like, Oh, am I dying? And then, you know, they're depending on the surgical position, they're often hung and transported on like hydraulic track across to get them into the surgical theater. So flower essences, you don't even have to give them to them internally. You can just spray them around them before and after surgery. I would highly recommend that. And then, you know, for an an injury like this, I fed. And then once the stitches came out, compressed herbs that were nutritive to the musculoskeletal system. And for her, what happened in that joint is it didn't calcify. It didn't, when Jim Meyer x-rayed that at six months, he said, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm not seeing any of the things I normally see in a joint that's had that kind of trauma at this phase. It just wasn't there. And the combination of internal herbs with external application is like this lovely botanical sandwich (laughs) for the person or the animal. And that's not the first time I've had amazing results with like compressing joints and then feeding herbs at the same time for injuries like that. So Mm. that those would be some recommendations, but the flower essences you can do really safely, benignly. They're not like immediately before and after surgery and they're not going to interact with anything. And that goes for people too. If you have to have surgery, you can do flower essences too, to help kind of bring the spirit back into the body, but also stimulate some of those vital healing forces. That's a beautiful reminder. Mm -hmm. I've seen like the five flower box formula work wonders with that. You could use the rescue remedy or five flower formula. There's also a formula from flower essence services that's called post-trauma stabilizer. And I would highly, everyone should have like those two products (laughs) in their, in their house or at their barn. Ooh, so what kind of things do you have on hand in your little herbal pharmacy for whatever might come up for you or your horse? Oh, it's like my herb storage is back here. I have thousands of things here at my house. <laughs> of course. So many things. I have so many things. Um, mm. What would I recommend? Well, a few different flower essences, like those two would be really great. Mm some homeopathy. I think everyone should have like Arnica, Letum, mm. um, Apis Mel, like some of these just uh, Hypericum basic homeopathic remedies. Cause you can use those for people and for animals. I use them. We have cats and we have a mini pig here. I use homeopathy on everybody. Um, and then for the herbs, you know, I like to have some first aid herbs. Calendula is like a great basic you can get a lot of stuff done with calendula. I like slippery elm for digestive issues. Even something like, wow, it was 90 degrees and now it's 60 degrees. Big temperature shifts. Those demulcent herbs will moisten the tissue in the digestive system. And I think they've saved me thousands of dollars in like emergency call it calls. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, the temperature change, you're not drinking enough water. Let's give you some good like demulcent herbs for your gut, which by the way, I usually love eating the like devour them. Um, I love red raspberry leaf for reproductive stuff. You can do a lot with red raspberry leaf. Um, nettles is a great nutritive. So is oat straw. Like if someone just had those few things on hand, you could get quite a bit done with just those. Yeah. Yeah. And the more that you learn about herbs, the more you just like need to have those around just knowing how amazing and powerful they are i'm not a big essential oil person that's like not been my wheelhouse can you talk about how essential oils are so different so i always love this example one Mm -hmm. ounce of rose essential oil takes two thousand pounds of rose petals to make two thousand pounds it's a ton literally one ton so Essential oils are highly concentrated and they should be treated as such. And for some people who are really chemically sensitive uh, or even animals that have sensitive skin, they can be just too strong and they can, they can cause, um, you know, contact dermatitis, skin issues. They can also just cause like, uh, like a toxic response too. So I tend to stay with like lavender, 
is pretty safe. Rose is pretty safe. Tea tree can be pretty safe too. But you get marketed. I mean, there's so many like MLL, MLMs, multi-level marketing companies with essential oils. And then it goes back to our earlier conversation around like sustainably sourcing these things. I don't think a lot of those companies do source sustainably. Yeah. I'm not an expert in essential oils, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it can be for like the amount of essential oils out there. I don't think it can all be sustainably produced or like organic or yeah, there's a lot of factors there. But I've I've seen people, you know, putting out articles about why you should bring essential oils into the barn and holding them out to smell them. And I think that for me, when I, I used to work at an Ayurvedic treatment center and when I'd refill the oils, like maybe spending an hour refilling oils, like I would feel high and like I needed to go lay down and take a nap for like the rest of the day. So just smelling them, you know, for a horse with such a fine tuned sense of smell, that can be, that can be a lot for them. So let's see you, you also mentioned, um, Oh, maybe we've covered this. You mentioned you'd love to talk about how horses transform the human soul and offer us an opportunity to learn, heal, and come into ourselves in a remarkable way. So is there anything else you want to add about that? I would add that it's less complicated than we think it is. Not to say that healing doesn't have a lot of subtleties or complexities, but I think sometimes just being with the horses, watching and observing the horses, we can learn a lot about ourselves. And I think, and this is one thing I feel like I've learned from like studying with like Buck Brandeman and people like that. He's always like, it's not about you trying to change the horse. He's like, it's about you changing yourself <laughs> so that you can show up better, differently, come from a different perspective. And I, I think there's real value in that for like all of our relationships. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. I want to just call it human training. It's so misleading. It's really like horses know all the things that we're asking them to do. It's about training ourselves Mm -hmm. how to ask. (laughs) Or work with our own nervous system so that we can be in a better place to ask them and not go to fear or anger or shut down or any of those things. COVID, I think, has changed a lot of things for a lot of people. And I, I think people's like, I even noticed it in myself, like, being more impatient or quick to anger since the COVID lockdown, which I think is kind of fascinating just to like witness some of those pieces. But, and I certainly have seen it externally and I have friends that work in customer service and like the experiences that they've had since COVID, like there's a lot of pain. And I think there's a lot, our collective pain body is full to overflowing with all the things, right? And one thing I know to be true, because I'm not, I'm not, I ain't perfect. I ain't a perfect person. I ain't a perfect facility. I'm not perfect. But what I do think is really true, especially as women, that community matters and orienting to repair matters more than being right or staying in blame. Um, And so with my own friendships and even the people I work with, I want to work with folks that orient to repair and that like we're in it together and we're in it to learn. It doesn't have to be perfect. But if I make a mistake or you make a mistake, we can work that shit out because that's where the gold is. And that's like deeper relationship. And I think there's, I know I've had some interesting like friendships end over these past couple of years that have been really painful. And I've, I've seen like posts on social media and articles and like family estrangements. And so I feel like it's something that's happening more so now than maybe before. Um, and Man, I just, I think like if I could have one wish that we would orient together, all of us to like what it looks like to repair and to be able to have like poignant, meaningful civil discourse and like talk to each other (laughs) and work with each other effectively (laughs) be a wish that I, I have. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I joke about that all the time because I'm married and we have a little yeah. toddler, almost two year old. So it is fun to be able to practice repair after. Yeah. It's like you're constantly honing those skills and then feeling stronger because of it too. Well, and if we think about horses and we're really dedicated as practitioners to horses, horses are some of the most forgiving animals. 
and they don't let themselves be walked on or walked over. Like you watch horses in a herd, man, it's brutal out there and it's clear, but you know, when you can screw up and you can come at something or come at a horse in a certain way. And then the next day you can change that. And maybe you have to do some repair, but for the most part, horses Mm -hmm. just accept that we're different and we get to move on together. And I think that there's like, especially working in the horse industry, a real invitation for us to take some of those principles and apply them to each other liberally, like a bomb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is the work right now. And forgiveness work. Like I, I'm doing a piece of forgiveness, like real forgiveness work right now in my life and really looking at like, <clears throat> well, forgive, not forgiving keeps wounds open and it can often keep us in a victim perspective. But when we, Damn, if we're able to forgive others, but also forgive ourselves, I know for me that's been really true. There were there were places where I had to forgive myself for positions I put myself in. And that that was so potent. And that kind of that opened up even more forgiveness for other people. Because it was with me and me. And I think sometimes we forget that too. Yeah, I wanna bring this into like how how you would define horsemanship because I feel like Mm. that's an everyday part of horsemanship. What is horsemanship or horsewomanship to you? I guess we already covered. <laughs> I think horsewomanship, I think it's a path of devotion. Like a, for me, it's like a spiritual path of devotion. And I think it's an active practice. It's almost like being in recovery. You know, you don't just get into recovery and stay in recovery. It's an active practice of repair, of reflection of making change, of tweaking things. And I think horse womanship or horsemanship at its finest can be that too. And of course it's working with the horse, but it's working with ourselves and it's fine tuning and it's showing up differently. It's trying this, it's trying that it's, but I think it's, it is a spiritual path for some of us. (laughs) And I think it brings us deeper into connection with ourselves and teaches us about ourselves and for me, it's been a source of great pride and accomplishment when I think about some of the things I've accomplished in my life. Gosh, the things I've done with horses and learned from horses and come around with horses, that's at kind of the top of the list. And I've done some cool things in my life. <laughs> so. so how do you also define health? Health. God, you've asked really good questions. I love these questions. <laughs> how do I define Health. I think health and well-being is about deep listening. And we can think about this individually and collectively, but I think it's about a, a deep listening internally to what the needs are, what the desires are, what needs to be tended to, either physically or emotionally. I think it's fluid. I don't think health is static. I think there's like homeostasis of when we're in parameters of good health, but I think it can change. And I think it changes at different phases in, in our lives. I'm going through perimenopause. So I'm like, what worked for me health-wise prior to this is not the same as what works now. But I also think that our health and well-being has to also, it's like, we can't just, I think health is this, it's a commodity, right? And it's something we're sold. And in our country, if you have a lot of money, you tend to get better quality healthcare, which really sucks, but it's true. And so I think our health and well-being is intricately tied to like the larger collective. And like, we have to ask, is our health exploitive of others' health or others' well-being? And it might be the animals that live on the property where you live, or it might be other people. But I think that health is not siloed. And I think sometimes we think that it is, that we're these singular beings and that our health is just individual. And it's not, it's collective and ever-changing. That's a powerful reminder really I love that like bringing into awareness not only listening to your body but are you through pursuing health exploiting right. other people or damaging right. other people or beings that really brings it full circle <laughs> so we've covered so much yeah. ground and I really wish we could go down like every little <laughs> rabbit hole uncovered yeah. here there's so much there but you'll have to come back on and just take it in a new direction. I feel like you're such a wealth of information. So where can people find you? Oh, you can find me on social media. My social media handle is JS Horsewomanship or on my website. But my Instagram is probably where I'm most active. And my website is jshorsewomanship.com. 
Love it. Love it. Thank you for listening to these stories on healing and horsemanship. If you're moved by this episode, please rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to help the show grow. This show is supported by The Herd. The Herd offers monthly bonuses for members, including access to a growing content library on all things health, wellness, and horses. Join today at wildwhaling.com herd membership. And until next time... I wish you harmony in your health and with horses.